Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, 2021. I am John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today in the stead of the absent Christine Rosen, we have Commentary Tech columnist James B. Meggs. Hi, Jim. Hi. Great to be here. Uh, we did not plan it this way, but uh, one of your signature issues that you've been writing about for the magazine on an almost monthly basis in the ins and outs of everything that you write about, which is, let's call it misestimation of risk uh, as, a, as a general governing rule that is making life harder in America at every pass due to institutions and authorities warning us about things that they don't need to warn us about or misestimating risk in their own case. We have a huge example of it today uh, based on, obviously, none of us is either a doctor or an epidemiologist, but, but we are rational thinking creatures who can read numbers the way anybody else can read numbers, even if we got six tens on our SAT math uh, not mentioning any of my own names, uh, which which is that the CDC and one other agency. I'm sorry, camera. Yeah. The, the FDA, the FDA and the CDC have announced a that a pause in the um, vaccinations with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine which, by the way, is a different kind of vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna. Pfizer and Moderna are these mRNA vaccines, and Johnson & Johnson is a more conventional vaccine that gives you a tiny bit of the disease in order to stimulate the antibody production. That's like a classic vaccine. Actually, it's not exactly, it's not exactly a classic vaccine, Okay, Um, but it's a, but it's in the vaccine. It's a, it's it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a different platform. It uses DNA instead of RNA. It puts the DNA in a kind of deactivated virus, uh, but not, it's not a deactivated, um, coronavirus, it's uh, more like a, a, a common cold virus. At any rate, that virus can't hurt you, but it gets the DNA into your into your cell. And because DNA is a lot sturdier than the RNA, it's a lot easier to store this, this vaccine. And it's got the advantage that it works with just one dose. Right. Um, but anyway, so the, these are two different types of vaccine. So you see, I told you I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor and I'm not an epidemiologist. I already got something wrong and we've only been doing this for three minutes. But what I do know is that they announced this pause. They, they haven't said how long the pause is. It follows similar concerns, pauses and things in Europe with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and AstraZeneca. Well, and Johnson and Johnson. No, am I wrong? Am I wrong again? I don't. I don't know if Johnson Johnson's approved on the continent, um, but AstraZeneca was the one that was given this sem- very similar thing. It was a blood clot concern in a teeny 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 percentage right. of the population, and right. they halted. You know, the European regulators halted the, the distribution of this vaccine, and as a result, the continent's vaccination rates are terrible. Right. Well, so let's get to the actual raw number because now. I think I'm going to be able to speak this sentence without making a mistake. But, you know, you never know. 
So gird your loins because it could happen. I believe there have been 6.8 million vaccinations in the United States, uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccinations in the United States. And of those 6.8 million cases, six have come, there are cases of six women, apparently all women, between the ages of 18 and 48, I believe, who have come down with serious blood clotting. Six out of 6.8 million. Um, so I, uh, our friend David Bonson, uh, one of our advertisers, but also our friend, uh, calculated the uh, number. I wouldn't uh, trust myself to calculate the number uh, of what what that means if you are uh, six out of 6.8 million. And it would be, and let me find it. Hold on. Point zero 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 eight eight. And for this, we are pausing the necessary effort to vaccinate, uh, you know, one third of the vaccination possibilities in the United States for this obviously slightly <clears throat> star-crossed vaccine that has been, you know, was was miss um, uh, was made badly in Baltimore and uh, by 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 a company that was contracted to make it and all of that. Jim, Megs. Yeah, not a good talk week. Talk to me about this. Not a good week for Johnson & Johnson, for sure, especially after that fiasco at the Baltimore facility, which maybe wasn't their fault, but it was their subcontractor. But, you know, at first when I saw this, it looked like a classic case of what I call the precautionary paradox, where a very safety-conscious agency like the FDA will strictly apply some safety standard in a way that prevents them from doing something that would actually save many, many lives. So, you know, it was as if when there were a few incidents uh, with airbags exploding and, and injuring, and even a few cases killing people in the early years of airbags, as if we'd said, well, airbags don't work and we should just pull, you know, not use them in cars. It looks a little bit like that. It looks a lot like that. But I want to actually give them a little bit more credit this morning. Um, Scott Gottlieb, the uh, former head of the FDA, and who's somebody that I think has a, a, a good balanced perspective on this, was on CNBC. And he pointed out that for a health agency, six severe cases of, of a rare disease might be a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. They, they might be thinking that they're missing a lot of less serious cases. And in order to to uh, collect that data and see what's going on, they they made this decision to pause the vaccine. And his argument was that because we have uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are going gangbusters, the supply is increasing, the rates of vaccination are, are going very, very well, it changes their risk, their um their risk analysis. If this uh, this had come up in January and J and J was the only vaccine, it would be absurd to to stop it based on these t- handful of cases. But he was giving them a little bit of credit for for um, 
for taking this break to figure out what's going on with this uh, with these cases. And I'm I'm still lean towards seeing this as a case of the precautionary paradox, but I, but maybe one that's a little more nuanced than it appears at first. The, there's another risk that I think we should look at when an agency makes a move like this, even though it might make sense in terms of epidemiology and and how you research the rollout of a you know major vaccine like this. There's one other risk that they're, maybe they're not taking into account enough, and that's public trust. You know, the public has been so whipsawed by contradictory statements, uh, you know, all kinds of confusion from from the CDC, especially over the over the I was going to say months. Now it's it's more than a year. And something you've talked about on the podcast a lot. I've written about it a lot. So here's just one more thing that gives people this sense like, who the hell knows? Now they don't even know if the vaccines are safe. The public doesn't always make these fine distinctions between one kind of vaccine and another. So I worry that the, the cumulative harm from this will be greater than the information obtained. But given that that we do have these other vaccines, they're going very well. It's maybe this isn't quite the the boneheaded move that that it it first appears. So you're, you're to summarize, you're saying that Dr. Gottlieb and other public health officials are calling for a complete shutdown of vaccinations until we figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> well, so, not right. We, I mean, when okay. you put it that way. Yeah. Well, it's a pause, right? It's a pause. It's not a complete shutdown. It's a pause. We don't know what the what the word pause means. Uh, I, I do know that, for example, at Skidmore College, the minute that they issued this, Skidmore was um, had been given doses to give to kids, and they are not giving the Johnson Johnson vaccine to kids at Skidmore. They're going to give them Pfizer and Moderna, which sounds great, except that you know it's like mid April, and so I don't even know when school ends, and you know it's like. Obviously, the one-dose system is much better for a transient population uh, because you don't have to come back to the same place three or four weeks later to get the second dose. Um, it, it, it's an interesting problem because I I, I, I sound Wait, I'll give you another one okay. just yeah, briefly because you mentioned colleges. Yeah. Michigan is, is the, the epicenter of this profound surge. Uh, Governor Whitmer has been requesting additional vaccine distribution to her state. She was summarily rebuffed, uh, according to CNN, rebuffed by the Biden administration. By some miracle, she managed to secure 160,000 doses of this vaccine that was going to be distributed to colleges and universities because the 20 to 29 age group has experienced a rise in case rates from between now and and, uh, February 19th to the tune of 415%. Real big increase in colleges. And now, they're not going to be distributing this. They're not going to be blunting the impact of this sort of thing. And just for context, take a guess how many Americans experience serious blood clots, according to the CDC, over the course of a year. Oh, hundreds of thousands, like 300,000. 900,000 people. We're talking now about a literally one in a million risk. Okay, so uh, a doctor friend of mine, uh, uh, as I was raging in our uh, private chat group about this um, and was defending the CDC and FDA, puts it like this to sort of defend uh, Jim's point and Scott Gottlieb's point. See if you can follow this. The number is statistically meaningless. 
meaning the idea that you would do it based on statistics uh if if the if the risk factor is 0.0000088 but it is not clinically meaningless it is a true distinct clinical entity related to the vaccine with no baseline in the general population young people get dvts they don't randomly get autoimmune platelet complexes that lodge themselves in the carnivorous sinus cavernous sinus so it is not like the increased risk is two percent over that of the general population the increased risk is infinity times the baseline risk because if the baseline risk is zero and suddenly there are uh you know six cases uh that's the canary in the coal mine you're looking at it at a population standpoint and not an individual standpoint that's the that's the defense and it's an it's an important one and i don't want to be you know like wildly dismissive of this i do however want to talk about the general macro versus micro and um uh, public health emergencies and in emergencies which this is uh just as you relax standards for things like the clinical period in which the vaccinations are being conducted, you know, in which a vaccine is being tested and over the long term. Remember, we are not in a position in which any vaccination in the United States has been authorized based on rigorous multi-year principles of study, right? This is emergency use use authorization. These are emergency use authorization rules that say we are suspending certain elements of what we would do in our most rigorous because the need outweighs the, the, the caution. And instead, this morning, the FDA and CDC said, out of an abundance of caution, we are putting this pause on, right? Okay, but here's the tricky part, if I could just... An abundance of caution is a, is the mistaken approach here. That's, I think, ultimately what the, the four of us would agree. The abundance of caution potentially triggers all of the anxieties about getting the vaccine that we are terrified are going to interfere with or, and compromise our reaching herd immunity. Do I have that right, Abe? Yeah, I think that that's definitely right. And I th- well, not only that, I think an abundance of caution has been responsible for uh, the idea, the framing, the framework of an abundance of caution has been responsible for a number of bad decisions um, since the start of this, right? Um, uh, having to do um, with um, sort of school closures uh, primarily from the start uh, and, and other things. I mean, so my concern here is because I, I, I take, I mean, I think we've we've done a very, Fair job of pr- providing some of the um, some of the defense for the for the pause here, but my question is: if it is found that the risk is and remains of the the, the of blood clots with the J and J vaccine, if it remains the point all those zeros eight eight percent, does the do we resume vaccinating with J and J at the same rate, or is that deemed itself? To uh, in an abundance of caution, do we then sort of you know put the kibosh on the J and J vaccine? There may be a middle path here, which is to do enough research to figure out who 
is the at-risk population for this. What's kind of alarming about these very small number of cases, as uh, John, as your doctor friend notes, this isn't just a case of deep vein thrombosis, you know, in the legs, which is very common, especially as people get a little bit older. This is uh, a different phenomenon. It tends to strike, it, it's all the cases are women and surprisingly young. The youngest was 18. So it's something that might be targeting a certain group of people if we carve those out and say, okay, we're going to recommend J and J for um, people over sixty, or or or, uh, or just for men, or something else like that, to allow it those doses still to be used, but protect that population that might have an elevated risk of this, admittedly rare but potentially serious uh, side effect. But Jim, as you had said earlier. And if I take your logic to its conclusion that this announcement, this extreme precaution will justify the fears and uh, perception in the minds of vaccine hesitant uh, people that they should just abstain entirely from vaccination altogether, Johnson Johnson or any of the others for that matter, that damage cannot be undone. We cannot simply flip a switch and say, oh, we're, we researched it a bunch and now it's okay. This is only going to reinforce a, pre, a preconception, a conclusion that they've already reached in their minds that they're not going to get this thing. And we are rapidly approaching the demand wall. Rapidly. We already have in my state, in places like Essex County, which is the home of Newark and the surrounding metros, a lot of unfilled appointments, a lot of uh, vacancies now that didn't that weren't there a while ago. 120 million people in this country have gotten the first dose. And that's going to slow very rapidly because the public health community is one of the biggest frustrations of the public health community is they perceive themselves to be capable of manipulating public opinion to get people to do whatever it is they think they should do. And people are much more complex than that. And if they have this idea now in their heads that they could get this fatal blood clot as a result of this vaccine, it's only going to reinforce a perception in their minds that they're better off unvaccinated. And you can't, you can't manipulate that out of people. Well, you, you, okay, so I think the problem is not the manipulation. It is that, it is, it is that a, a certain type of bureaucratic rubber is meeting a certain type of, um, of, uh, international crisis road. And the rubber is that the FDA and the CDC have ways of doing things. And they have been compelled by circumstance and uh, an emergency to loosen some of their policies and, and things. This is a long, hard, decades-long argument about this in relation to medicines. Dating back to the 1980s, this was a cause celeb by the Wall Street Journal editorial page about how uh, the FDA in particular was a roadblock to um, last-ditch, last-chance efforts that uh, people, you know, willingness to try experimental therapies because they had no, because they were, you know, they were they were going to die otherwise. And the FDA would say, no, 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 we're just not ready to, get, you know, give you that, give you that drug or something like that. And, and this, um, regula- this uh, regulatory, you could in some sense say that Part of the regulatory frenzy that overtook the United States beginning in the early 1960s begins and ends with this. That is, there was this wild 
wild enthusiasm about the magic of modern medicine in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that culminated in the international heroism and celebration of Jonas Salk for the for the development of the polio vaccine, uh, you know, which made him, you know, like he was like Fauci times 10. I mean, he was a he was a worshipped garlanded figure. He had saved untold millions of people from this horrible, debilitating lifelong condition with this stuff you put on the top of a sugar cube and just put in every kid's mouth. And then in the late 50s and early 60s, British company, you know, a drug company developed an anti-nausea medication for pregnant women, particularly uh, called thalidomide and gave it. And, and it was not approved for use in the United States. Society women flew from the United States to London to get themselves thalidomide because they had crippling and horrible morning sickness. And then they gave birth to deformed babies by the thousands. And the thalidomide crisis, scandal, catastrophe, tragedy led to this incredible tightening of what was what were completely reasonable restrictions and time-sensitive things on these to- toxic brews of chemicals that were being developed to to try to help help cure people, and then the bureaucratic necessity sets in, which is like or or you know or the ortho- orthodoxies always do this, which is if it's tight, that's good. Let's make it tighter. Let's make it tighter. Still, let's still make it even even tighter. This is the first time, except for AIDS. This is the first time in my lifetime that you have seen a world in which people, in which the general consensus has been, shut up, stop with your, you know, stop with, you know, get this to market as fast as possible because the consequences are so dire. And in my sense of the, this is almost like a kind of, and I think it's unconscious, a kind of don't tell us that what we've been the way we've been doing things for the last 40 years is wrong look six people got blood clots you know we did this all too fast we better be careful let's pull back yes and you're right jim that there are these other vaccines so it, it so the it looks like it's cost free but i i think you have to look at this in the in the in this kind of historical context and then say well what exactly is going on at the fda and cdc that makes them think that this is a virtuous thing to do rather than something that they should be doing under great, under a sense of great resistance or, or that, you know, they're doing something that they tragically have to do that might have these consequences because they have no other choice. That doesn't seem to be why they're doing it. That's what the abundance of caution phrase there is the giveaway for. They're doing it because they can and because all things being equal, they're not really happy that they have been taken down this incautious path by the pandemic. So one thing that's very hard for me as a journalist, and I think hard for all of us, is to use the three words, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think here, this might be a case where as much as we all follow this really closely, and I think our, I think the idea that the harm of this will be much, much greater than the risks, we just don't know that much yet. And I feel that it's the, the best we can do is gather more context, context, try to figure out what's going on, and uh, and hope this was 
the right decision. I'm leaning against that view, but but we this it's very early to know. And there's one other factor that I think might lend some credence to your thought, John, that there's a, a kind of a, a political subtext of this is the fact that it was all women patients who came down with this condition. You know, it's been a uh, an article of faith among many, especially on the left, that medicine systematically ignores the problems of women and minorities. It, it you know, that things are tested on men and men are, the, are considered kind of the default human. Uh, there was a lot of truth in that at, at one time. I think there, it's much, much less true now. But when they looked at the political risks they might face or the blowback they might face if uh, if something went more broadly wrong with the J&J vaccine, it's just possible that 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 this this odd fact that it seems to only be affecting women might elevate that risk that uh, here we go. The federal officials don't care about women. And and they were especially worried about that particular uh, problem, but again, we just don't know yet. I, I really think we need to we yeah. need to pull together a little more information. Uh, but it, it does look to me like an example of this precautionary paradox I like to talk about. Okay, well, look, this is very stressful. This conversation is, is giving me a lot of stress. And wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket sized guide that helped you kind of? Sleep, focus, act, be better, less stressed, all of that. There is, and if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. It's the daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. One of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by, and for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Can I? Uh, yes. I want to add uh, something about uh, uh, just about the, the the abundance of caution and, and the meaning of halting the J&J that concerns me in a very broad sense. Um, I feel as if uh, during the pandemic, we've lost, uh, by we, I mean sort of everyone, have lost our sense of uh, acceptable risk. Um, we, we, we no longer sort of remember what that felt like uh, in a pre-pandemic world, the kind of everyday risks uh, that, that would be entailed by doing everyday things, and including taking medications and, and you know, venturing out into the world. Um, and uh, this, I fear, advances um, that distortion. Um, this, this, this continues us down that road of, um, contrary to the idea that this is an emergency and we've, and we've got to sort of, you know, we've got to take on extra risk, risk perhaps for, the, for a greater good. Um, it's more like um, we're, we're getting down to a genuine sense of we need zero risk in all things. 
to 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 proceed. I I think that's an important point, and and I mean I'll give you another example uh, of news that is not being stressed because we are stressing the news that uh, increases the 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 risk fears, and that is uh, a study came out last night that says. Uh, that people infected with the more contagious coronavirus variant first identified in the United Kingdom, that's the B117, did not experience more severe symptoms and were not at higher risk of death, according to, according to this new study. Uh, this is a wildly important thing. It's a sample of 341 patients. You know, I, again, I'm not going to go into the details because I'll get them wrong and I don't really understand them. But clearly... When we were told that there was a new variant that was spreading like wildfire and it was so dangerous and we were on, we were on this collision course, we needed to get people vaccinated because it was going to spread like wildfire. The thing about variants is they can come in two or three different kinds, right? They can come in, it's much more virulent and much more dangerous. It can be, it's weaker, <laughs> Right. It's there, but it's weaker. It's not as powerful. It's not as it doesn't affect you as much, and it maybe breaks down more quickly. Or it's about the same. So apparently, B one one seven. It's about the same. And if it's about the same, okay, Jim, you were gonna. Yeah. So this study is interesting. Uh, you got to put it in context with other studies. There was one in in Nature that found a sixty one percent increase in in the risk of death in a population. Another study also showed some increased risk. So again, this may be one of those things where we're at an early phase where we don't, we still don't know much. I I totally agree that the press has its tendency to jump on every piece of bad news and not put it in context with good news or, or anything else that would help us understand it a little bit better. But what's intriguing about this variant is patients do seem to have a higher viral load, even if their symptoms aren't noticeably worse, which might indicate the reason it does seem to be more uh, transmissible. I mean, the very fact that it's now the dominant strain in the U.S. as well shows you that it's highly transmissible. It won out over, you know, other strains that had already passed through the population. So, uh, a virus can get more dangerous even if, it, if, even if it's less lethal. In fact, it's a common way the viruses evolve. They become less lethal because that's good for the virus. People are walking around and, and interacting more with other people. So the virus has more opportunities to spread. If it just kills you off in three days, then that's not going to be a very effective virus for a pandemic. Uh, and what's been so scary about COVID is this kind of delayed onset where the viral load seems to be climbing in people. And then, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're spreading it when they're asymptomatic or, or I think most likely just pre-symptomatic, you know, that day or so before the symptoms really kick in. And that is part of what the genius of, you know, the perverse genius of COVID-19 is, is this, this uh, ability to, in certain people, you know, uh, be part of these super spreader events. So B- B-117 does sound like it might be worse in that regard. The fact that it's, that a study shows it's not wildly more lethal is 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 really promising. But I do think that while the the, the variant news was hyped the way every 
you know, negative story is hyped somewhat. It does mean we have to keep the pressure on to get people vaccinated as fast as possible. But this is <clears throat> this is just driving me absolutely out of my mind. These people <laughs> now pers- now think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with what happened here, that there's going to be no impact. Jeff Seitz, head of the White House's COVID-19 response today, says, look, this is not going to have any impact on our vaccination plan. Johnson & Johnson makes up only 5% of our recorded shots in the United States. We theoretically, I add the word theoretically, have a supply already established in Pfizer and Moderna to dose 300 million Americans. Forget the demand wall, which they don't even have any idea what to do about, so they pretend it doesn't exist. We're well, already you should explain that. the demand wall, Noah, because I, I think... It's the amount of people who want to get the vaccine. Assuming you don't handcuff them and drag them into a mass vaccination site, they have to ambulate, ambulate themselves over there, meander into the, into the, into the place and, and get the shot, and then come back two weeks later and get another shot. This is all voluntary. There's only so much inducements you can use to get these right. people into these places. And this is something that you have to educate people on. And they and when they deem to acknowledge it, they talk about it as though it's a problem with Trump voters and evangelicals, as though it's not something that highly educated, well-informed, affluent people are desperately trying to find any information they can to avoid getting these shots. They hang on every word in the press that's negative. They talk to me about it. They try to get me to convince them to do it. Like it's their, like it's my problem. And now we're talking about approving this vaccine for children ages 12 and 15. Good luck. Good luck getting that done. Unless you have schools, which literally won't allow you in the building unless your child is vaccinated, which I guarantee you is forthcoming. The notion here that you're going to have these parents who experience a second shot, and it was a a troubling experience for them. It was 24 hours of pain. It was a mild flu, but it's an ordeal. And you're telling them to do this to their children. Now with the looming potential threat of profound complications that risk that, that might be risking, you know, uh, severe lifelong complications or even death. According to the FDA, one of these blood clots was fatal. Now you're talking about reinforcing this idea in the public that vaccination is, is perhaps riskier than just getting the virus, especially for children and minors, especially for people under the age of 18, who, for, who, who, they, all, all these informed people fi- hang on these reports and know that children who get the virus recover almost all of them. Okay, so Jim, take off, take off your tech columnist hat and put on your media veteran hat. You were a top editor at several magazines and magazines in the, you know, the, the golden age of Time <laughs> Inc. and all of that. And let's just talk a little bit about the 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 way in which people who have to make these decisions about what you're gonna what you're gonna shine the biggest spotlight on, right? The classic thing is page one real estate. That's what people used to refer to. What's on page one? Does it deserve to be on page one? What's on page one? That obviously doesn't really count anymore. But so the spotlight is pandemic and uh there is four point there is news on sunday that 4.6 million doses were delivered we're at uh as noah said we're at a third of americans i think having been gotten at least one shot and 20 percent now fully vaccinated and obviously in just by the end of april that means that at least a third of americans will be fully vaccinated if not uh, considerably a higher number than that. And news that the variant 
may not be as frightening as we thought it was and all of this. And then you have the FDA and CDC say, pause on Johnson Johnson or that, or that the other thing. And um, what is it about this, aside from if it bleeds, it leads, what is it that leads an editor or a series of editors or the hive mind of the mainstream media to want to say, oh my God, this is terrifying. As opposed to everybody join, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, World War II propaganda thing maybe, but everybody join, you know, everybody bring in your, bring in your, um, your steel, you know, your aluminum or whatever. It's for, we're having a scrap metal drive so we can help the, you know, build the, build the B-52 bomber or whatever it is. Why, why is it that we're sitting here saying everyone's got to get vaccinated? There seems to be a general idea that everyone needs to get vaccinated. And the news seems to retard, seems to be in opposition to this goal because of the stress of the, the ways in which the news is stressed. Yeah, there are layers to this. You know, when you asked me to write this column, one of the first things, one of the first ones I did was about why the media is bad at science. And so your most basic problem is that questions like, what is the context? What is the baseline? What is the actual risk in perspective? Those are questions that journalists just aren't very inclined to to ask themselves, uh, especially ones that don't cover this as a regular beat. There's plenty of great journalism on COVID, but it tends to come from very experienced science journalists uh, and not, you know, your regular reporters. You also have that if it bleeds, it leads bias always in journalism that the the outlier, the bad news, the the exciting, dramatic news is is naturally, you know, nobody nobody writes an article about the plane that didn't crash. Um, and but then you there's an um probably in the last generation to two a growing bias in the media that it is on a kind of moral mission to fight for the underdog to expose corruption among elites elite institutions uh, you know it's funny because media is one of the ultimate elite institutions in our society but this idea that we're going to expose why you know, the people in charge don't care about immigrants or poor people or minorities or, or whoever. So there's a little bit of that built into, say, to, to covering like, you know, any story where officials did something and then it turned out to have a bad side effect. So um, so therefore, it's our job to help protect these, you know, these innocent people from this thoughtless um whether it's corporation, you know, especially if it involves big pharma, they, these, you know, this heartless capitalistic organizations that are sending out potentially dangerous vaccines. But then there's a final factor that's newer really in the last 15 years. And it, and it relates to what you were saying, Noah, that there's a huge population of cons- news consumers who are devouring this stuff because now stories that get elevated, it's not just some editor's decision to put something on page one, it's a feedback loop. And so the stories that are getting shared, that are getting clicks, those are the stories that are making money for the media organizations. Reporters are being rewarded for generating those headlines. So a story that might be reported with some nuance, some balance, maybe a little more boring, less likely to get you angry and immediately share it with all your friends on Facebook. 
those stories tend to fall back and and the stories are the framing of the story that puts it in the most negative, scary, dramatic uh, um, uh, uh, framing. Those are the things that, that get shared. So there's there's pressure from both sides to make our journalism worse. Um, it's, uh, I mean, this is, this is one of the first, uh, occasions on which I, I see this wild, uh, cognitive dissonance in the way elite people think about this. And again, you say media are the ultimate elites and they are, you know, vastly more likely to go to elite colleges, elite institutions, you know, private school in a complete reversal of the way the media was two or th- three generations ago. When often this was, it wasn't exactly a working class job, but I'm mean, people, people were, you know, didn't necessarily go to college who were like star reporters and things like that. Um, and so it is, it is ac- axiomatic that uh, the only way out of this is mitigation efforts and vaccination. And yet we have, a narrative that has been developed over the course of the year that militates against mitigation efforts and vaccination. It seems to be inadvertent. Um, and it, it goes to sort of points that Noah has been making since the beginning of the pandemic about how if you tell, if you tell people that they have to live in draconian lockdowns, uh, they're, you know, at some point or other, they, they will, they will resist, being told anything by you because you're making you are telling them that their light the way they live is un is not insupportable will kill other people and all of that and they just they know better in their marrow that that there's something wrong with that lesson so it's a weird it's a weird moment because as i say you have these kind of like you have these these things are in conflict and they're not being supported because it's not like I'm saying they should ignore one thing over the other. Again, it's a question of what you shine the spotlight on. What is what is the what is the overarching news direction that you're trying to take? And one of the issues here, and no, it's one that you, that you've really drilled down on, is they don't trust the public. The health officials don't trust the public. The media doesn't trust the public. So, and you see this in all kinds of stories. Um, it, the they're afraid that if they tell who's actually committing these acts of violence against against Asian Americans, then it's gonna there's gonna be some huge racist backlash from this huge majority of closet KKK people that they just know are out there waiting to be activated. You know, if they if they say, well, you know, as long as you're outside, there's really no evidence that this that there's much risk there. So it's probably OK to go to the beach and probably healthy, in fact, to get out to the park. No, no, they can't say that because if they say if they get people a little bit of permission, then everybody goes hog wild. So better to exaggerate the risk, better to be more conservative. Fauci basically admitted this on a number of occasions that he basically. Yeah, no, yeah. very clearly. Jim, you're very, you're, you're very, Jim's very generous with, you know, the, just, but to you know reinforce the, the mutual admiration society here, your piece on the, the, how elites misjudge the public's response to emergencies is one we reference constantly on this show. And it is the definitive take on the, what we see from public health officials like Dr. Fauci, who admits that he fudges data in order to make you do things he thinks you should do. Right. Hey, I, I just, I, uh, we were, I just wanted to say we were sitting in your office yesterday. Yes. We're in the office, both vaccinated by the way, 
but I've been in the office for months anyway. Um, we're seeing your office looking at state by state at risks and, you know, what, the, what, what on earth is going on in Michigan? How can we understand what's going on in Michigan and all this? And so we click on Texas, right? Texas, a month ago, Texas lowered, you know, got rid of all its mandates, right? All statewide mandates lifted. Fauci yelled about it. People were like, oh, here it comes, all this. Just go look at the Texas chart. Anybody right now, go go and look at the Texas chart. The numbers are collapsing in caseload and deaths in Texas. Now, it it almost beggars reason because almost everywhere else, if you look at this chart, there's this kind of blip upward over the last two weeks. It's a mirrored in almost every state except for five or six of which one is Texas. Why is this happening in Texas? The three magic words. We don't know. Fauci was forced to say on Morning Joe that he really didn't understand why this was happening in Texas. That was 10 days ago, and it's still happening in Texas. And so, Abe, yeah. I mean... So, so that was I was about to say this, actually. The, the, sorry. The, no, it's fine. It's, the, the story has advanced since uh, Jim's um, definitive take on elite panic and um, the... the the um, inclination of public health officials and others to um, sort of treat the public response to crisis as a bigger crisis than the sort of activating crisis itself. Um, It's advanced in that we see foremost in the case of Texas that um, the, the, the public health bureaucracy and the press and others, they don't even change that approach after the real world evidence is in, right? Um, what Texas shows, it's true that we don't know exactly wh- why the, the cases haven't skyrocketed um, as predicted by the supposed um, Neanderthal move to to um, get rid of mask mandates and, and open up stores. But um, I think it's a pretty good guess that um, what's happening there is that people given the choice, are actually being overwhelmingly responsible and um, not going willy-nilly into huge indoor crowds without masks and, you know, licking each other or doing whatever, that, that they're in fact, you know, wearing masks um, because they they see the sense in it. They just don't need um, the government forcing them to do so. Uh, but that has, that well, even Fauci can acknowledge in an individual case that, yeah, it it seems that um, the the horror that he predicted was wasn't going to happen, but but it doesn't change his the larger thinking at all. Right now, guys, uh, we're uh, Jim is our tech columnist, and I'm I'm guessing I'm not going to put him on the spot. I'm guessing that he uses a VPN uh, because every sensible person knows that they're trying to sell your data. Big tech companies are selling your data to each other. Data brokers are collecting your data using your clicks and the sites you visit and all of that and selling things about you that you may not want other people to know. And even if you don't mind them knowing, it's still creepy that they do know. And there are hundreds of them out there. This is what they do. And they don't have to tell you whom they're selling it to or get your consent because all they do is collect your IP address and they harvest the information on it and they identify you, your location, and everything that you do. So I use ExpressVPN, which reroutes my connection through an encrypted server, masks my IP address, uses a, a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN users, 
and therefore it's very hard for these companies to collect and harvest my data. And it's so easy to use no matter what device I'm on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All I got to do is tap one button to get protected by ExpressVPN. So if you believe your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Um, I wanted to move on to a to a to an old 2020 hysterical bugbear topic because stuff is go interesting that is going on in the world of polling, which is another science tech pseudoscience topic that drives everybody crazy because it looks like science and it acts like science, and then every election cycle. We it becomes totally clear that it's soothsaying. A lot of it is soothsaying and magic, and there's a lot of lying going on, and a lot of bad data are being collected, and all of that. And uh, we have a news story today following uh, uh, Pew, the research center, which does not do like horse race polling on you know who's going to be president, who's going to be senator, and all that, but collects a lot of data about Americans and their habits and their behaviors. And in the course of that, during an election year, we'll ask you what you, who you're going to vote for. And they found systematically, once again, as they had in 2016, a massive undercounting of Republicans, Republican voters, and the issues and concerns that concern Republicans. Uh, you may not think that it's massive if I say that it's 2%, but 2% in a, in a, 2% a systematic skew of 2% in a survey like that is very significant because there's a margin of error. Statistically, it's a pretty serious thing. And we get news today, this morning in Politico, that five Democratic polling firms have come together to acknowledge that they screwed up in 2020, that they systematically overestimated the Democratic electorate, underestimated the Republican electorate, and led to this horrible shock that Democrats and all of us, I think, experienced at the uh, at the results in the House, where Republicans gained 15 seats instead of losing seats, and in uh, an election at the presidential level that was closer than any polling had it being, uh, and of course also Senate races where we were told that the race in South Carolina was within three and it was 13, and that. Uh, and that Susan Collins might lose, and she won by nine. Joni Ernst won by nine in Iowa, a race that was supposedly tied, except in the last poll in the last week. And they don't know what happened, and they're, they've apologized. They're essentially, they've issued a kind of, we're sorry, we're going to do better, we're going to come up with ways to do better. Jim, once again, you as our resident number head. What did you what did you make of this? Well, first of all, can we just acknowledge that this is just funny, I mean, you've got all these experts. They're highly paid. They generate all of these these predictions, all these polls. And then we have an entire industry of pundits who discuss it. And it turns out to be based on cotton candy. And, you know, you very rarely get what just happened. You very rarely get them to come back and say, oops, we really did screw up. Uh, and, and you almost never get the pundits to say, why did we listen to these guys? Uh uh, so I think that's the first, 
thing that we need to acknowledge. And in this kind of, of sort of oracle bone, black box prognostication, I, I think it's always helpful to go back to the great screenwriter, William Goldman, who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride and lots of others. He, he always had a, a, a saying about all the people who think they can predict which movies are going to be hits. He said, nobody knows anything. That's kind of been my my motto for a lot of things that involve big groups of experts with self-reinforcing opinions. I don't think the world's going to be a worse place if we admit that we don't know that much about what voters think. Or that even the voters don't know that much about what they think when somebody calls them on the phone. You know, the world is messy and people are complicated. And so maybe that's a good thing. Like, we don't need to know exactly how the election is going to turn out two months ahead do I mean why, you know why bother so I'm I find this amusing and not very concerning I, John, I, I, I just, am I mis- I just want to really, am I remembering maybe you guys can help me right after the 2020 elections I have this distinct recollection that the punditocracy the commentariat all was really certain that there was no significant polling error in the 2020 races, right? We were in, I, I remember people saying that there, there wasn't anything, maybe you lose a little off here and there, but it wasn't any significant systemic error. No, Nate Silver said there was no significant systemic error, got angry on his podcast and other things about people saying there was, and then slowly he acknowledged that there was, and he's now, he now has a bifurcated view. First of all, Part of that happened because, if you'll remember, it took a week or more for the size of the Republican bounce back in the House to become clear because of slow counting in California, weird ways in which California had to count its ballots and all of that. So this 15-seat gain was not clear Wednesday or Thursday afterwards, right? So that was one thing. And then, of course, this whole thing was masked by the fact that, yeah, Biden won. So he won, uh, and so what's the big deal? They predicted the winner, and everybody predicted the winner. The fact that they predicted that he would win by a margin, double the margin that he won by, or that he would win in states that he lost, or that he would win so narrowly in a couple of states that he won that it gave Trump room to create this false narrative about the election being stolen from him. So the new line, and it's in this story about the five pollsters and all uh, the five Democratic pollsters is, maybe it's all just Trump. Like, as long as the elections don't involve Trump, the 2018 polling was good, and the special election polling in Georgia after the election was good and all this. It's just that Trump brings people out to the polls who just don't respond. And what are you going to do if they're not in the surveys? How are you going to reflect that? There was that guy whose name I can't remember, that weird fake pollster Trafalgar, right? Who basically said, I have an amazing system. And uh, apparently his system was just add five points to whatever number Trump had or something. And so he had Trump winning, whatever. Um, But, uh, you know, that's one way of doing it. You just say, okay, Trump's in the race, so systematically just add five points to his total. Maybe that's as good as any other way that you might do it. Um, but there, that so this mean, is I now would say their, three points. It turned out to be five points. <laughs> right. So their their hope, their hope is that their Trump represents a weird X factor that he brought out 
the lowest of low propensity voters who came out to vote only for him, didn't vote for Republicans in 2018, didn't vote in the Georgia specials, and probably won't be there to vote in 2022. So this idea that there's going to be a classic midterm wave toward Republicans, maybe that's not going to happen. So they are already creating a happy talk narrative. This is a weird democratic thing that happens. And I, I don't really understand it because uh, as a as a Jew, I always expect catastrophe. But as long as I have known and been friendly with Democrats and all of this, they are meliorist about their chances always in a really weird way. <laughs> like they always think they're going to win because they don't know anybody who disagrees with them. They've never met anybody. They see them on TV and they all look like they're walking around with Confederate flags and spitting tobacco into a can. And so they have no idea that these people exist and live next door to them. And so they have no idea that people think differently from that. But it is a 30-year experience in my experience that democrats are shocked constantly by the strength of the anti-democratic or anti-liberal factions in the united states so people who are facing some kind of disaster do this thing or in the early stages of a disaster they do this thing where they say to themselves okay this is pretty bad but it probably won't get any worse or this problem will resolve itself. You know, Chernobyl, you know, any anyone you look at, this is this uh, this syndrome. I think that's part of what's going on here. And if they think that all of this squirreliness in their data is Trump, that doesn't account for why so many Republicans outperformed Trump in their states. And people turned out, voted against Trump and for Susan Collins, say. Uh, so it is... Um, you know, and it certainly doesn't fit if you assume that some people just show up and only voted, you know, the, the real Trump diehards would just vote for Trump and leave everything else blank. So, you know, I think they're fooling themselves. I think they've got a, a problem. It might be a permanent problem. Our society's changed. People don't, you know, I mean, everybody talks about not answering the phone, but it goes farther than that. And I don't know if they're going to fix this problem. Uh, that's the thing about the, the permanent aspect of it. There's a paradox in this defense of polling. Right. Let, let's say that they're right. OK, let's say that Trump is this confounding factor. And um, with him now, you know, the, when he's involved, all bets are off. Uh, at the same time, there's the, 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 the largely left liberal leaning media tells us that Trump has changed our politics forever. Right. Or at least at least the right. They, he, he's changed the, the, the Republican Party. So this why would this be going away? There are still millions of um, sort of, you know, Trump, pro-Trump people out there with phones that are going to that are going to respond to polls and perhaps continue to confound them in the very same way. Look, I'll tell you why it matters. It matters. We can see it mattering right now in in the political arguments that are going on right now. Jim has a big piece in the May commentary, which will which we're going to put out, try to put out on the website today about Biden's infrastructure bill. One of the claims about the infrastructure bill is that it is a bipartisan bill, even though no Republican politician supports it. Why? Because according to polling, Republicans like the bill. So polling is being used as a substitute for representative government. We measure representative government and partisanship and bipartisanship by the behavior of the politicians we send to Washington to represent us. Biden is attempting, understandably, as simply as a matter of, you know, selling his case, 
to undercut that, since no Republican will vote for, uh, for will vote for this bill by saying, but the Republican public likes it. If at the same time Democratic pollsters are saying we don't know how to count Republicans, they are undercutting Biden's PR case here. And if the PR case isn't Biden, let's say Biden really believes the PR case and isn't just using it to, you know, like gull the media or whatever. If he really believes it, he is walking himself into a buzzsaw because he is using corrupted or bad data to imagine that his policies and the things, controversial things that he wants to do are in fact popular when they might not be popular. And I'll give you so, a tiny yeah. example of something that came across my transom today in polling that was very funny. I think it was Gallup. It said two-thirds, fully 68% of respondents to this poll said that they would not choose to accept employment with a firm based on its environmental record. If you believe that, much less act on it, right. you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, why would I anybody mean, publish yeah. that right. data knowing that it doesn't comport with anything lived or empirical? Right. And so the question you have to ask yourself is why are those questions being asked? What's the purpose of them? And why are they being used as a propaganda weapon? Right. That's, and that's and ultimately polling has seriously used. Polling exists for the purpose of informing people who have to try to sell things to other people, how to do it or whether or not they're, it's a fool's errand what they're doing or whether they can sort of shit go, go in another direction. When the polling itself becomes a propaganda tool, then again, it's the Plato's cave problem. Does Biden think that the shadows that are flashing on the wall, does, did they say, you know what, Mr. Biden, Mr. President, it's just an animal outside the cave. Like, it's nothing. Like, it's a, just a shadow. Or is it like, they love you. They love, see? They love you. And he's like, they love me. You know, and then he'll do this. And then in 2022, he will have his head cut off. I mean, that's where it gets interesting. Just as it's interesting for me to tell you, once again, you got to get yourself into an X chair, that fantastic desk chair I've been telling you about that provides heat therapy and massage therapy right to your core using its dynamic lumbar support and the patented HXMT technology that delivers you exactly what you need from a desk chair, not only comfort, but but uh, but gets right to your core, soothes you, comforts you, makes it possible for you to sit comfortably and happily for hours doing the work that you have to do. It's a fantastic gift uh, to be able to sit in a chair and feel like it's enjoyable to sit in the chair. You look forward to spending hours in the Ultimate Therapeutic Massager. You won't believe the X Chair difference. It's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1 844 X Chair. X Chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now and use code X Wheels for free X Wheel Blade Casters X Chair Commentary dot com. So uh, very quickly, we we're running very long, but Jim, t- talk to us a little bit about the infrastructure bill that I just uh, referenced and your piece, which people will be able to read momentarily on CommentaryMagazine.com, where we ask you 
to subscribe after a few free reads or don't even wait for a few free reads. Just subscribe the minute you get there. So this idea that you can poll people and say, hey, would you like them to fix the potholes and, and maybe build some new bridges? And they overwhelmingly say yes. It means that there's bipartisan support for a, a bill that most of the public doesn't really understand is kind of a classic little bit of, uh, of sleight of hand or, or um, you know, three card Monty. And what's amazing about this bill is how little of it is really what, what we would traditionally define as infrastructure. This broadening of the term infrastructure to include things like home health care aids. You know, we're spending more on home health care aids than we are on a lot of classic types of infrastructure. The other big part of this bill is the the effort to reinvigorate unions and get unions back into industries and states from which where they are largely absent. So the word union shows up in this bill or this the the fact sheet that the the White House put out more than the words electricity, highways, airports, even climate. And so when people say that they believe something is a big emergency and has to be acted on, it's always worth looking at what they're, how they prioritize the things that will fix that problem. And what this bill does is it talks about infrastructure and it talks about climate, the need to get to uh, get our get fossil fuels, carbon emissions out of our uh, electricity grid by 2035 and out of the economy in general by 2050, an uh, extremely difficult, ambitious goal. And yet the tools it puts in place to do that are, are surprisingly dull and, and modest, really, compared to the scope of the problem, where, uh, but they insist on every, at every stage, okay, we're going to build... Um, more transmission lines to move all this renewable power around. You know, you can't put windmills in in Texas and expect them to power um, um, Chicago without vastly improving the transmission lines. But then they stress that it's going to have to be union workers or or it's going to be what they call the prevailing wage, which is an old dodge where the government steps in and more or less mandates that everyone who's involved in a contract has to hire workers at more or less the standard union wage and with a lot of the fringe benefits that union workers get. So it drives up prices, you know, anywhere from 12 to 25 percent. So basically you're saying climate is a huge existential crisis but given the choice be- between building building five windmills, uh, you know, five wind turbines or four wind turbines at this location, well, we'll take four and just pay everybody more, even though we could have easily built five. But actually paying people more is more important to us than, than the turbines. And I'm not begrudging people getting paid well. I'm not. And, and, and unions can can work very effectively. Our new Tappan Zee Bridge, the one that I refuse to call the Governor Mary M. Cuomo Bridge, you know, that was built with union labor and it was came in at, around, as I recall, around $4 billion. And it was a little over budget. It was behind schedule, but not terribly. Uh, so to me, that's a real success story. It can be, this stuff can be done with unions, but forcing people to work with unions in states where where workers have chosen not to join unions, having the government come in and and start imposing all kinds of, of mandates that make that empower unions and, and give them more opportunities to intimidate people who might not want to join the union. That's a lot of what's behind this bill. And 
you know, you were talking about the 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 um, the desire to show that it's a bipartisan effort to the public. But if you read the fact sheet itself, it's almost designed to alienate conservatives. You know, it's almost designed to be toxic to to Republicans. There, I don't. It doesn't look like they're looking to attract even a handful of Republican votes of the people who who said they wanted to, they would support an infrastructure plan. But when that plan includes unionizing millions of home health care aides and, 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 spent, and set up an entire new program, certainly one that will wind up being permanent, to, you have $400 billion to pay for health care, for you know, elder care. That's not an infrastructure bill. That's something else. Right. Look, the central fact here, in my view, politically is – Let's assume this bill goes through on reconciliation, 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris breaking the tie and the House voting it in by two or three votes. And Republicans will spend the next year and a half saying 5% of this bill was spent on infrastructure and 95% of the bill was spent on liberal leftist policies to pay off Democratic constituent groups. That's a good argument. 5% of the bill was spent on infrastructure. Now, you can make a claim that that number is a little un- it's a little low, but let's say it's 10%. It's not more than 10%. It really is probably 5% based on what we would classically call infrastructure. And once again, they're rushing this in. And Matt Connetti says this also in his piece that's in the May commentary, which will not be available right now on the on commentarymagazine.com like Jim's, but you can read it probably on Thursday. As he says, this is born not out of a sense that uh, the world has changed and everybody wants these big government solutions, but out of desperation and fear that they've got to ram all this in before they are basically paralyzed by the electorate in 2022 that goes what the hell are you people doing with our money so uh, with that jim meggs tech commentary columnist thank you so much for being with us it's always a joy to have you with us and to have you in the magazine every month and for noah abe and the absent christine rosen i'm john Podhortz. keep the candle burning